Hey church family, welcome back to another Leroy UMC podcast. This week, you're in for a treat. We're starting a new series titled Old Testament Horrors. I gotta say, Pastor Matthias really dives deep this week into some tough Old Testament history. Here's Pastor Matthias. Well, friends, this morning uh, we are starting a new worship series together as a church family, and it is just as heavy as the last one. Uh, we, so it's, it's actually a fun fact for you all about worship planning uh, in the church. In most churches, worship series are meant to kind of follow the seasons uh, of the calendar year. You get fun worship series in the summer when everybody's out playing. Uh, you get series about new life and new beginnings uh, around the spring and Easter. And in the cold, bleak midwinter, uh, we typically talk about some of the heavier subjects and some of the more difficult issues that scripture often raises and that we get to wrestle with. Uh, and it's, it's actually a blessing. It's good to have a season when you can talk about those difficult subjects that can be difficult to talk about, but which ultimately are still the word of God. They are still in scripture for a reason. Uh, so this morning, our new series that we are starting is called Old Testament Horrors. And <laughs> cheerful title, I know. But the idea is, uh, this morning and over the next three Sundays, we are going to be taking a look at some of the most challenging passages that uh, the Old Testament has to offer. Um, and we are going to talk about them just head on. Passages of warfare, some of the laws we struggle with, some stories that can be unnerving, all sorts of things. And the ultimate goal of this series is... I hope that it raises a lot of questions or, or sparks a lot of conversations uh, after the series. Uh, someone once told me even a bad sermon can be a great one if it gets people talking and asking questions uh, after the service. So uh, as we start out, though, this morning, we are starting with an example of one of the most challenging uh, texts in the Old Testament, uh, the warfare passages that surround the conquest of Canaan uh, in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. And so our scripture this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Friends, listen now for the word of the Lord. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy... And he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations mightier and more numerous than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must utterly destroy them, make no covenant with them, and show them no mercy." Do not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for that would turn your children from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But this is how you must deal with them. Break down their altars, smash their pillars, hew down their sacred poles and burn their idols with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. 
friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Sometimes it's easier to rewrite the sins of our past than to face them. That's something that many Americans actually discovered about 150 years ago in the aftermath of the American Civil War. It was a war that ultimately cost 750,000 Americans their lives and left whole cities as piles of rubble. And when the smoke finally cleared and people began to rebuild, many Americans, the majority in the South, found themselves facing a very bitter reality. That not only had they lost the war, but they had fought on the wrong side. Confederates had called themselves heroic revolutionaries when the war started, but by 1865 they were failed traitors. They'd claimed to be defending their freedom, but now it was apparent they'd been fighting to take freedom from four million human beings they called their property. They had lost, they had been wrong, and by the grace of God, the inhuman sin of slavery had ended, but for some, all of this was simply too painful a truth to face. So as early as 1867, just a few years after the war ended, writers, journalists, and self-acclaimed historians began to write a new version of the Civil War, which the writers themselves called the Lost Cause, and which we know today as the cult of the Lost Cause. Basically, the Lost Cause was a revisionist history that rewrote the story of the Civil War by casting the southern states prior to the war as a bastion of civility, chivalry, and genteel refinement, and recasting northern states as a land of greedy industrial capitalists who had invaded the south without any provocation. It reimagined southern generals like Jackson and Lee, not as slave-owning traders, but as patriots who were somehow good slave owners. Yes, they kept people in chains and sold them like cattle, but they were nice about it. But the greatest rewrite that proponents of the lost cause came up with by far was inventing the idea that the real cause of the Civil War wasn't slavery, but was states' rights an idea which almost none of the documents, letters, and speeches written before the war have, but which suddenly appears everywhere after the war ends in lost cause literature. Simply put, the lost cause was a myth that rewrote the history of the Civil War in a way that washed over the sins of the past by replacing a painful truth with a convenient lie. And sadly, it worked. 
from school textbooks to Hollywood movies like Gone with the Wind, Lost Cause ideas about a heroic, civilized, innocent confederacy spread everywhere. I mean, as late as the 1960s, you could still find school textbooks that called the Civil War the War of Northern Aggression. Most tragically, to this day, you can still find some old southern plantations now converted into museums that tell the story of a refined and cultured antebellum south, but say nothing about the thousands of men, women, and children who were tortured and killed in slave cabins just out back. From 1861 to 1865, thousands of people fought and died and were wrong, believing in white supremacy and in enslaving an inferior race. But no one wants to believe they fought on the wrong side. No one wants to see themselves, their father, their grandfather, as the bad guy and sometimes it's easier to rewrite the sins of our past than to face them. Of all the sins in the Israelite people's history that they might later have wished to rewrite and forget, few are as grisly, unsettling, and violent as the stories and history of how the Israelites came to possess the land of Canaan. You must utterly destroy them, God had said, or at least they believed God had said. Make no covenant and show them no mercy. It's a verse that can unnerve even the most devout Bible reader and leave even the most seasoned preacher hesitant to say, this is the word of the Lord. Deuteronomy 7 is an example of what's known as a harem passage. Harem is the Hebrew word that gets used there in verse 2 for destruction. And basically it was a form of warfare in which the idea was that after the battle, everything that the victors might normally have taken and claimed was to be devoted to destruction because it was devoted to God. The Israelites were forbidden from taking any of the gold or silver, the grain, the livestock, the possessions, anything that might have belonged to their conquered enemy, which sadly included people. And this isn't the only harem passage that the Old Testament has. There are lots of them surrounding the conquest of Canaan in Exodus and other places in Deuteronomy and all throughout Joshua. I mean, everyone talks about how the walls of Jericho came a-tumbling down, but no one talks about how afterwards Joshua 6 says, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed every living thing in it, men and women, young and old. And in the ancient world, the logic behind this very brutal strategy is that it offered a radical solution to the problem of idolatry. No object or person could be spared because the people's idolatrous beliefs could not be allowed to survive and to find their way into the Israelite people's culture. 
In verse 5, in that uh, text, you even get a, a clearer picture of that ultimate motivation when God says, break down their altars, smash their pillars, hew down their sacred poles, and burn their idols with fire. As God tells the people in verse 6, you are a people holy to the Lord your God, meaning that pagan idols needed to be kept at bay at all costs. However, while that does make sense, that doesn't justify slaughtering an entire population. I mean, this is mass murder. It's borderline genocide. You can place this problematic passage in its historical context, but that doesn't make it any less horrifying. The more you sit with it, the more you wrestle with it, the more you find there's no justifying this. There's no reconciling it, no putting a positive spin on this passage. There's nothing holy about what God's people are said to have here done in God's name. There is no good news in this passage. This is a scripture, it's a text, it's a history that is meant to trouble you. It is supposed to unsettle, unnerve, leave you confused, maybe even revolted, and not just us. This is a passage that has troubled every generation of believers. Even the earliest rabbis struggled with how to interpret these harem warfare passages. It is a deeply distressing scripture and one that won't allow for us to pretend it is anything else. The Israelites were wrong. And the interesting thing is, Scripture knows it. Sometimes Scripture refutes and challenges Scripture. And there are many other passages in the Bible that do push back against Deuteronomy 7. There's the story of Rahab, the Canaanite woman who was more faithful than most Israelites, survived the massacres, and lived with the Israelites in peace. There's the story of Ruth, the foreign Moabite who intermarried with Boaz and came to be a faithful servant of God. Interestingly, both of those foreign women who might have been killed by Deuteronomy 7's crusader logic both appear later on in the Gospels in Jesus' family genealogy. These others who might otherwise have been utterly destroyed became part of the Savior's own family. And they're not alone. There's Cyrus and Jethro. There's the history of Judges, which has a different take on the conquest. There's the Gospels, all bearing witness to the fact that the harem passages of the Old Testament are a dark stain in the Israelite people's past. So the question is, why are they there? Why didn't the authors and editors of the Bible erase them? Why not reinterpret them, recast them? Why not rewrite these sins of the past instead of facing them? But that's just the thing. These horrifying harem passages stood the test of time 
for the very reason that we might be tempted to rewrite them. Because our God isn't afraid to face the sins of our past, no matter how troubling they may be, and because our God isn't afraid of the truth, no matter how many questions it might raise. Maybe the most important thing to keep in mind whenever we come across horrifying passages like this is to remember that sometimes the Bible describes rather than prescribes. Just because the biblical writers report that something happened once doesn't mean that they necessarily saw it as righteous or something to be imitated. Just as not every character who appears in the Bible is a hero to be admired. The Bible isn't just a list of commands to enact. The Bible is a record of the people's history, and not all of that history is righteous. There are some truly dark stains on the people's past, sins that haunted them later, horrors they'd rather forget. Just as I have no doubt, there are regrets and some horrors in our own past that we would rather forget. But while some might refuse to face their past, while some prefer to whitewash their history and choose a convenient, unoffensive myth, this passage remains because the Bible doesn't. The Word of God doesn't cover over. Scripture doesn't spin, doesn't whitewash, and doesn't shy away from hard truth. The Word of God faces the truth head-on and asks the very hard questions that that truth brings. And when all is said and done, maybe that's, I think, the good news that Deuteronomy 7 has to offer. The good news of Deuteronomy 7 isn't found in the terrifying text itself, but in the fact that it exists, that it was preserved, that it proves the Bible is not afraid of the past because our God is not afraid of the truth or the questions it sparks and that may be the most important reason why these passages have stood the test of time, because the Bible doesn't explain away the ugliness of the past, but invites us to ask hard questions. The Bible wants you to think. These passages are supposed to unsettle and unnerve us because, as biblical scholar Terence Fretheim once observed, Living with questions about the Bible over time is essential because they keep us thinking about matters that are central to the faith. Horrifying passages like this exist to push us, to encourage us, to force us to wrestle with the word of truth. Deuteronomy 7 was supposed to spark hard conversations among the Israelites after the war had ended about who the good and bad guys really were. Questions about who the victims were, questions about who gets to be in God's family and why. And it still exists today to push us to let go of simple assumptions about the Bible, about holiness, about history, about our history. Because the good news is, 
Not only is our God not afraid of the truth, of history, of sin, but our God gives us the grace to question. The grace to overcome every past sin. And the grace to wrestle with hard issues that in our wrestling bring us ever closer to the healing beyond our past. When all is said and done, there is no good news to be found in the horror of Horem warfare, just as there was no good news to be found in the nightmare of slavery. Whether Deuteronomy 7 happened in actual history or whether it was an exaggerated later retelling the conquest of Canaan is a deeply troubling chapter in the history of God's people and one that left them in the wrong. Yet for all the horror, all the shame, and all the questions that this violent history raises there is good news to be found in the fact that the text exists. Sometimes it is easier to rewrite the sins of our past than to face them, but our God is not afraid of our sins, is not afraid of the truth, is not afraid of hard questions, because our God doesn't just face the very real horrors of this world but our God gives us grace to question and grace to overcome them. And thanks be to God for it. Amen. Friends, please pray with me. God of our fathers and mothers, we praise you because in you there is no fear. No fear of enemies no fear of sin, no fear of the truth, whatever the truth might be. Lord, you hold up a mirror and challenge us to see ourselves and our past as it is. You face the most difficult issues head on and draw out our most uncertain thoughts. You call us to bring our every thought, our every sin, our every question to you. For it is in you that we have the grace to face yesterday honestly, and the grace to move into tomorrow as a forgiven and reconciled people. So Lord, grant us your grace this morning, each one of us, that each one of us may ask the hard questions that your word does not shy away from, and the grace to become that holy people that your love seeks to make us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Again, we wanna thank you for listening. Please share this and comment to let us know what you like and what you think we can do even better. Be blessed and go in peace.